part one of the reasons Foucault is uptight about hospitals is because patients are worked on individually. Whereas on the dance floor, you know, the experience is inherently collective. It's an experience of collectivity rather than an experience of individuality. You know, the patient is being assessed according to a set of you know, abstract norms. Whereas on the dance floor, you're not being, yeah, you, it's a collective experience. And it's an experience in which you know, individualized norms or you know, norms in general are often being transgressed. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Red Medicine, a podcast about radical politics, medical anthropology and the sociology of science. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Jeremy Gilbert about parties, dance music and the dance floor and how all these spaces might inform a politics of bodily liberation under capitalism. Jeremy Gilbert is Professor of Cultural and Political Theory at the University of East London and he's the author of numerous books, including 21st Century Socialism and Hegemony Now. He's also the host of three regular podcasts, ACFM, Love is the Message, and Culture Power Politics. In this conversation, I asked Jeremy about his long-standing interest in the politics of the dance floor, and how we might think about the role parties and dance music play in constructing a set of practices and ideas about the body under capitalism. We also compare these ideas and practices with those of the clinical space, and in doing so, look for affinities and contradictions between the two they relate to ideas of bodily autonomy, pleasure and control. Another reminder that there are still a few tickets left for the event on May 25th. Red Medicine will be holding an event titled Illness at the Horse Hospital in London, which will feature readings from Amber Hussein, Misha Fraser-Carroll and Matt Colhoun on the politics of illness. Tickets are on a sliding scale so you can pay what you can afford and those can be purchased using the link in the show notes. Finally, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by signing up for a £1 a month donation on the website or if you can't afford that, you can rate the show five stars on Apple Podcasts or share this episode on social media to help us find new listeners. Now, with all that said, we'll move on to the conversation with Jeremy. Basically, I want to talk about the dance floor, quote unquote, and the clinical space or the medical space. And, and, and maybe by thinking about them both together, hopefully reveal a little bit about both and sure yeah maybe think about the kind of politics of the body under capitalism so before we get into that could you start us off by talking about what animates your sustained interest in dance music and and the dance floor as a political space or experience well i started off writing about this dance music culture at the end of the 90s largely because it was the definitive cultural experience of my cohort of my generation and you know rave was the thing that was new uh, for us and it was sort of definitive as limited as it was you know and despite the fact that actually it had all kinds of historical antecedents that lots of people participating in it say in the late 80s and 90s weren't always aware of so that was the main reason you know, I was, invo- I, I was involved in, in, in the sense that I went out clubbing a lot and I was interested in dance music as the kind of cutting edge of popular music in the 90s. But also, to some extent, I had a sustained, I maintained a sustained interest in it because I, I, never, wa- I never was one of those people who like went out every weekend. 
and um, and got burnt out after six months. So it was always I was always doing it at the same time as various kinds of political activism or just trying to get my academic career going, etc. And so I guess partly for that reason, by the end of the nineties, I had a fairly good perspective on it, and it was also clear that nobody not not many people were writing about it actually not many people were writing about it well so you and pearson and i did this book in 1999 and then quite unexpectedly a couple of years after that i found myself involved with this project um, of bringing over to london david mancuso from new york who had been the really the key foundational figure of new york dance music culture in the 70s and that was because my friend and colleague, Tim Lawrence, who was working in the same department as me, who was just in the process of finishing his big historical study of New York dance music in the 70s, knew David. And that was quite unexpected. It wasn't something I was planning to do with my 30s, uh, but it became a big part of what I ended up doing with my 30s, is kind of organising these events with, with David and then with other people based on what we'd learned from him. I think there was this sense, I remember we David started coming over, the occasion for David to first come to London for the first time since the early 70s was the release of this compilation on the Shoreditch-based dance music label New Phonic, this compilation of sort of classic records associated with his DJ sets going back to the 70s. And... I remember the guy, I don't remember the guy's name, but the guy who ran the label who, or one of them who, on the occasion of the release of this compilation, said that having listened to this collection of music and having attended one of David's events, he had, he had come to the conclusion that he had been doing, it was either dance music or dance culture, I can't remember the phrase, he'd been doing it all wrong, like all his life up to that point. And I sort of felt that as well. I mean, the experience of, you know, the experience of rave and dance culture in the 90s was quite unsatisfactory a lot of the time. You know, sound systems were really bad. Uh, music was often quite boring. There was this real commitment a lot of the time on the part of DJs and clubs to playing like one particular kind of music all night long, which if you were really, really committed was fine, but if you weren't, pretty boring. Um, I would say in general the kind of cultural, the culture, the socio-political cultural atmosphere of sort of, of sort of Gen X culture in the 90s was basically apolitical and um, that apoliticality infused the whole club scene, I would say, with a certain banality much of the time. So while those of us who were sort of politically motivated were always looking for some evidence of this this these practices having a sort of resistive capacity it wasn't really there a lot of the time especially after the complete failure to defend the kind of free rave scene from from criminalization after the mid-90s so yes there was this sense that we that, that there had been a huge sort of there had been a big sort of investment in it and yet we had been just doing it all wrong <laughs> i say and um so i started I got involved with actually putting on events, which were putting on dance parties, which were which were, which meant I had to learn a lot of stuff I didn't think I'd have to learn. I had to learn how to be an I had to learn audio engineering basically, sort of from scratch and um, of a certain kind anyway. And I had to learn a lot about organising events and 
other than just political conferences and and then that project which i thought when i started in the early 2000s i thought would probably last five to six years and then sort of burn itself out naturally didn't instead it evolved into a couple of regular dance parties that have become sort of institutions now within london dance culture in a way which is is really gratifying but it was not, not, not what i expected to happen so and then there was the moment of at the at the moment of the emergence of the Corbyn movement, there was this phenomenon whereby quite a few of the young activists around Corbynism in London really gravitated towards the nights I'd been putting on and, and and saw them as a sort of aesthetic expression of their politics in a way which seemed quite important. So it's been a sort of ongoing thing throughout that time, and for all those reasons, does that answer the question? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And have you ever thought about it before in, in relation to um, sort of ideas around health and, and medicine? And Well, I've certainly thought about it as therapeutic mm. in that sense. I've said, and I've certainly thought about it in terms of, I mean, there's sort of two, there are two just, if you're someone whose main motivation for doing anything is political, mm -hmm. From this point of view, then there are two possible justifications for devoting quite a lot of your life to organising dance parties. And one is that it's this sort of radical utopian prefigurative practice that radicalises people and contributes to a general radicalization of culture, which is uh, sometimes true, and it has been true for some people, but I think it would be naive to assume that that's the function it's actually carrying out for most of the people involved most of the time and then there's a slightly subtler sense that well it might be that this is largely a sort of therapeutic practice that you know the, the function of dance culture in an advanced neoliberal or post-neoliberal society is to give people a sense of even if it's only temporary a sense of collectivity a sense of collective joy a sense of you know an experience of solidarity and empowerment if only on the dance floor, which can, which can be a really valuable therapy for people who are engaged in various forms of political and social struggle outside the dance floor and in their daily lives. So in that sense, I have, you know, going back to when I wrote my first book with you and Pearson about dance culture, I mean, the question we were interested in when we wrote that book, the question we were primarily interested in to orient our study was why had dance music culture attracted so much hostility from so many different quarters um, not just from the state not just from police but it was still the case then it's much less the case now but it was still the case then that disco for example still just wasn't really taken seriously as, as a part of kind of substantial the, the substantial history of popular music and so the question was why why had there been so much antagonism and one of our answers was, well, this partly has to do with a very long history of attitudes to the body and a very long history of attitudes to the body, which are dualistic in nature, which uh, which fetishize and prioritize a certain kind of rationalism, a certain ideal of disembodied rationality, um, which according to which you know, dancing is always a vulgar activity. And really, music as such, especially instrumental music, music that doesn't re revolve around being a, the music being just a setting for a set of lyrics, 
is is problematic. It's problematic because it troubles the sense of the individual self as this completely rational, self-contained mode of being. I mean, I, I never tire of pointing out to people that Plato says that in the ideal republic, music would not be allowed unless uh, it was as an accompaniment to lyrics. And the reason music should not be allowed is because it makes people over-emotional and, and it makes people more behave more like women. His men behave more like women. So therefore, that's why it shouldn't be allowed. So there's an entire history of thinking about you know sound and the sonic and, and its relationship to both to the body and to affect and emotion going on there. And yeah, that, and that's what I've always been interested in. I, I mean, in some sense, I would say from a, from a professional point of view, from a theoretical point of view. Yeah. I mean, I'm probably I'm probably yeah I've been more interested in the the sort of the yeah the politics of the body and and the the way in which bodily experience is thought about and talked about than I am in you know, I'm more interested in that than I am in like DJing for example as as a cultural practice. Yeah, that makes I think that uh, makes a lot of sense for this conversation actually. Before we get into maybe more specific questions of of perhaps comparison between the two sort of spaces or two, the two sort of zones of the dance floor and and the kind of the clinic let's say is a shorthand for both of these things that are obviously quite complex i thought it might be good to preface it by asking you about the counterculture the counterculture is a big part of the the sort of research podcast uh, project you do with tim lawrence and and you trace a lot of your interests in dance music culture back through the counterculture which i think is interesting specifically for this conversation because you can also trace back a lot of interest in histories about radical ideas about health not least of all the anti-psychiatric, anti-psychiatry movement um, and all these different ideas of thinking about the way in which technologies of the body, let's say, can perform sort of coercive function as well as a liberatory function. So there, there's a lot there, but to begin us off, could you maybe just, I'm sure most people listening know what the counterculture is, but maybe just a brief intro and then, and then perhaps why it's so important and why it anchors so much of your interest in, in, in some of these questions. Sure. Well, the counterculture is a term that gets coined in 1967, and it is referring to the idea that a whole range of different cultural, political, social tendencies, which we still think of as typifying at least Western societies in the late 60s, can be understood as somehow potentially cohering into an entire movement to oppose, not just to present an alternative to, but to oppose uh, many of the norms of capitalistic consumer culture that had developed to such a high level by the late 60s. And those different elements would include uh, the peace movement, the anti-militaristic movement that was uh, had emerged really in opposition to the war in Vietnam and other forms of imperialist violence, anti-racism. Uh, it's interesting, that, I mean, at that moment in 67, when the term was coined, then women's liberation wouldn't really have been seen as, as a key component, but it emerges very quickly as, as being obviously in some ways one of the most obvious manifestations of this tendency. But it would also include things like the psychedelic movement, the hippie scene, etc. And I think it's important to understand that the idea of the counterculture is always sort of performative in the sense that it's trying to make something happen. You're you're making a set of claims about the potential. It's a sort of it ref, it's referring to an aspiration as much as to an actuality, to a real thing that exists, and that aspiration is for these various strands to cohere and to converge with the politics of the new left as it was emerging then, 
coming out of the student movement in the States, coming out of the radical democratic strands of the workers' movement in places like Britain, etc., to converge into some sort of a coherent political, social, cultural project for you know, renewal of the culture and to some extent for especially you know, a project to democratise you know, culture and to democratise social institutions, to sort of intensify the processes of democratisation that had arguably been going on since the late 19th century in, in certain ways. So that's one way of understanding the counterculture. But of course, lots of people today now use the term to refer to just basically anything that was happening between sort of 66 and 72. So you hear, you might hear on podcasts, people talking about you know, Charles Manson as part of the counterculture or you know, the Hell's Angels were the counterculture. Or, and it just sort of means anything that wasn't like mainstream American network television that was happening between 67 and 72. And I think that's a really, I think that's a really lazy usage of the term. And it's a, it's a usage of the term which is partly a product of a narrative which emerged from the late 70s onwards, which wanted to claim that there was really no real social or political radicalism to most of those tendencies, and that most of them were really just anticipating the emergence of a highly developed, highly differentiated kind of consumer culture from the 1980s onwards. And I think that's just, I mean, no, honestly, no serious, like no historian who's interested in that period, like would make that claim because it's just completely unsustainable. It's quite clear that what's happening really from the early 60s onwards is a very serious set of challenges to established forms of authority at the level of the state, level of the family, the level of the corporation, etc. from a range of different sources. And it's also clear that for the most part, they're not able to go here into a sort of revolutionary political force, which is really able to overthrow you know, militaristic consumer capitalism. On the other hand, they are able to make very serious sets of demands, some of which have to be met um, by state government, etc. During that time, and that's that's a fairly complicated. It's a fairly complicated process, which are fairly with a fairly complicated and uneven set of outcomes. But I think it is really important politically, simply to hang on to a recognition of the fact that what emerges between about sixty six and seventy two, seventy three in many countries around the world, actually, is a very, very serious challenge uh, to capitalism, really, and to the, and in particular, a challenge not just to capitalism, but a challenge to anti-democratic institutions, whether they're capitalist or government or state institutions, and even within the you know, the Soviet bloc, you know, there's a you know, there are serious challenges to anti-democratic institutions and forces. And, and in many ways, that produced, that's, from where we are now in 2023, you can still say, well, we can look back and say that was the last great revolutionary efflorescence. That was the last great historical moment when it wasn't a given that the tri that the 20th century was going to end with the sort of the total triumph of American capitalism over all of its uh, systemic rivals and political enemies. It wasn't a given. It wasn't necessary. It could have gone a different way, and that's partly why that moment. Um, that moment of the counterculture uh, or the idea of the counterculture being an ideal towards to which many people aspired was a moment which gener which you know generated a lot of ideas and experiences which I think are still really relevant for us today is still really important so that is why I think it's still I think it's such an important uh, term and I think 
you know, if you're just interested in music culture, you can't, you absolutely can't get away from the fact that all of contemporary music uh, really starts in the 70s. Like with, you know, whether you're talking about, you know, it starts with heavy metal, punk, funk, hip hop, reggae, dub, um, disco, and the electronic music of Kraftwerk. After it, like there isn't any contemporary popular music which doesn't basically derive pretty much directly from that moment. And if you're going to say that that fact is in, is not deeply connected to the fact that that is also the great moment when this revolutionary efflorescence takes place and it is really led by social groups like you know gay people in, in getting you know struggling for gay liberation and above all african americans who i think you know take on a kind of vanguard role in terms of world working class culture if you're going to say it's not that that intense period of musical creativity just happens which just happens by coincidence to be connected you know, to be happening at the same time as women's liberation and gay liberation and black power etc and all, while also being obviously connected to sites you know whether it's you know the, the black cities or the gay clubs or whatever sites at which those struggles are, are taking place in really intense forms if you're going to say all that, those things are not connected well the onus of proof is on you the onus of proof is not on me really to say they are connected it's, it seems tediously obvious to point out they are connected so for all those reasons the idea that something really important was happening at that time that, that still echoes down to the present uh i think is is really important yeah and i mean it's always difficult with that period of history i think you, you know like I don't know how possible it is to to point to all that and say there's a kind of coherent politics across so many geographies and movements and things. But but what does it mean about that period that it produces both this generative period of kind of cultural production and really important experiments in in the clinical space around anti psychiatry and and that you know can we can we point to a shared or, or maybe coherent politics of the body across those different movements? Well, see, I would say the key thing, the key area of debate around the meaning of the counterculture, if you like, from my point of view, is around its relationship historically to the highly individualistic forms of culture that become normative from the 1980s onwards. And the banal claim made by people like Adam Curtis or Savoy Zizek and lots of other people, the banal claim is, well, because people in the 60s were interested in certain kinds of, of personal freedom, and because that, you know, post-Thatcherism, everybody's become these kind of privatised subjects, because we've ended up in a world in which the sort of the, the deal offered to us by society as a whole is, okay, you can have a, a level of personal freedom in your private life that's historically unprecedented, but you know, don't expect social institutions to carry on functioning in any meaningful way. And because of that, there's this kind of direct unilinear relationship between those two things. And therefore, what's what's going on in the 60s is this individualism, this individualistic backlash against the collectivism of the post-war period. And again, it's just that is not a claim that stands up to one moment's historical scrutiny. I mean, it's very, you just have to look at, for example, the founding statement of Students for a Democratic Society in the United States, the Port Huron Statement, which says explicitly, you know, the problem with 
consumer capitalist America in the early 60s is that it's too individualistic already, that it's not collectivist enough, that there aren't institutions of real democratic agency for people to engage with. And that all of those people are engaged in some sort of a struggle for democratic forms of, of collectivity, not for simply individualistic alternatives to collectivity. And this also, I would say, is true of a radical impulse behind the most progressive uh, elements of anti-psychiatry. The most progressive elements of the anti-psychiatry movement are linked to a critique of, in particular, a critique of the way in which psychoanalysis had become institutionalized in the 50s, whereby really, I mean, under the leadership of figures like Anna Freud, in psychoanalysis has become institutionalized as a practice which absolutely takes for granted the unchallengeability of both patriarchal and capitalist norms, and which regards the role of the analyst and analysis as being to encourage the individual subject to adapt themselves to those norms and to do so by learning to protect the ego from external threats to it. So it's absolutely, it's almost sort of Hobbesian vision of what it means to be a human being, which has crystallized as the central norm. And of course, it's not just psychoanalysis. I mean, if you look at what's happening in American psychology at the time, one of the big preoccupations is uh, is, uh, is the idea that, well, the worst thing that can happen to a society is totalitarianism. And total totalitarianism is collapsed into this general category that includes both communism and fascism. And the idea is, well, how you get these terrible disasters like fascism and communism from their point of view is that the boundaries between individuals get dissolved. Everybody sort of loses themselves in this mass uh, being. And uh, I think that's a really crappy analysis of like what the genesis of fascism is, for example. And it and it has its direct roots in reactionary, anti-democratic liberalism at the end of the 19th century. I mean, it, the, the godfather of this whole line of thinking is Gustave Le Bon, the French you know, arch-reactionary thinker of the late 19th century, who who absolutely explicitly thought that, you, that democracy was a terrible idea and could only lead to sort of mob rule on any scale. And so what's really at the heart of all that thinking then is this very deep individualism, this belief that the great achievement of modern liberal society is the liberation of the private individual from the shackles of superstition and community. And it's the liberal individual who must be protected and that the role of psychotherapy and, and therapeutic practice is to enable the individual to maintain their, their ego defences, to maintain their boundaries, to maintain their individual autonomy. Now, from a radical perspective, from a socialist perspective, this is just completely wrong. This is completely wrong because human beings are fundamentally social beings who, if you try to make them behave like atomized individual subjects, you would just induce pathologies in them. And also, human beings' capacity to make the world, to act in the world, to do anything in the world in order to make the world the way they want it to be is dependent on various kinds of collective and social action. So all you will do, all you can do by insisting that people maintain their ego boundaries is fundamentally disempower them and fundamentally leave them vulnerable to intense forms of exploitation and alienation, which is what capitalism does to people. Now, all of this, everything I'm going on about here, all of this is partly there in the impulses of people like Lang and Cooper to break with uh, psychoanalysis, to break with, to break with 
liberal forms of uh, psychology and therapeutic practice. But do they ever really carry through the critique to the kind of level that I've just set it out? I, I don't think so, really. And that's partly because, you know, there are very severe limitations, especially in Britain, very severe limitations simply to the intellectual resources available uh, to the anti-psychiatry movement. It can't really make the kind of engagement with Marxism that its French equivalent and Italian equivalents are able to make. I mean, partly just because a lot of the sort of Marxist texts, that, yeah, they're Italian and French uh, contemporaries are reading and engaging with aren't even available in English. You know? So it's always underdeveloped. And there's always a risk that indeed, anti-psychiatry is just going to collapse into a sort of nihilistic libertarianism in Britain. And certainly in the case of people like Lang, it's, you know, it, often, quite often that line is crossed, you know, the line is crossed between a, a radical socialistic, you know, collectivist form of therapy and 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 a form of therapy, which is just anti-institutional, in this in a sense which has nihilistic and, and radically individualistic implications of course that's also what happens with the broader counterculture what happens with the broader counterculture is the elements of it which are the most radical and which are the most challenging uh, to capitalism are the ones which are the most likely to be suppressed by capitalism and, and to be rendered unrealizable by capitalism and the elements of it which are the most palatable to an advanced capitalism are the ones which are most likely to survive and that's why what survives out of the anti-psychiatry of the 60s is things like the human potential movement, is things that go into new age, is things that go into these very individualistic modes of self-actualization that are promoted you know, out of California and become much more normalized in the broader self-help discourse and, and forms of post-psychoanalytic and non-psychoanalytic psychology in the set from the 70s onwards. But you know, from my point of view, the important thing to understand is that that is the outcome of a political struggle and a political defeat. It's not something that's inherent in the questioning of, yeah. you know, Freudianism. Yeah. So one of the things I think is could be really interesting about thinking about these two spaces together is that I think they're both sites that perform, in some contexts, a kind of control, a kind of um, what we might think of as a kind of social reproductive function. I think that's slightly what is coming through and what you were just saying then about the anti-psychiatry you know does therapy simply recreate the worker so that they can perform well as a worker etc cetera, etc cetera. but then at the same time both both the kind of medical space or, or, or a space of care to maybe broaden it slightly and the and the again the shorthand of the kind of the dance floor of the party they also point to a politics of the body that is very liberatory and it's and it's about a function of the body beyond the demands that capital places on it it's about Yes. Pleasure yeah. for its own sake, care for its own sake. One way into that, I think, might be for me to ask you how you see the dance floor as a, as performing a role of social reproduction. And then perhaps then from there, we can maybe compare and contrast with, with the, the clinic and the medical space. Sure. Well, if you just think about the trajectory of British uh, club, dance, rave culture uh, over the course of the, from the late 80s to the end of the 90s, mm. I mean, actually, when it starts, it's always important to acknowledge when it starts, it's really Nazi, it's not political. It's just a bunch of people, you know, trendy people who've got trendy new drugs, like having a cool time. Then it's not political at all, really. And um, it becomes politicised, actually, when the rave scene starts to fuse with the free festival scene, which has been developing since the early 70s. 
And it's really the free festival scene, to be honest, which the police and the state and the Tories want to crush. They don't really care about rave, to be honest. Like even This was something I, I myself at the time didn't fully understand. But because of that fusion with the free festival scene and because of a, ge- a more general politicisation that happens during the recession of the early 90s, so fairly minor sort of politicisation that takes place amongst young people, but but it, yeah, it's significant compared to the, the real sort of apathy of the late 80s. Um, outside the poll tax movement, it was never included as many people as some people would have you believe. Uh, because of all that, there is this sense that rave is that rave is is some is something radical because it's a re- it's a very self evident self conscious rejection of the polite but fiercely competitive individualism of Thatcherism. You know, there's no more obvious rejection of Thatcherism, celebration of both competitive individualism and social hierarchy. Um, the rave where people from all different social backgrounds come together for no and, and don't try and wear trendy clothes and dress in track suits and and just do nothing but dance for hours and hours and hours and it's true like it did at that very precise moment in time it seemed incredibly radical and you know, it felt incredibly radical and liberating uh, by the end of the 90s licensing laws have been liberalized in lots of places so you didn't need to be in a warehouse or a field if you wanted to dance all night you could just go to a commercial club with a late license the the central institutions of dance culture of these huge commercial clubs the so-called super clubs and at the time the most uh, popular the most famous super club in britain was liverpool's cream and sometime in the late 90s cream ran an advertising campaign which featured uh, good-looking young people in their place of work, supposed place of work, which was always some boring job, with the uh, caption, it's the reason I work all week, cream, and the cream logo. Uh, and I remember just showing this to people at the time, saying, well, that's that then. <laughs> <laughs> that's that done with. And um, you couldn't really ask for a more explicit statement of the idea of of dance culture as a site as a, a, a means of social reproduction and you know, the reproduction of existing social relations you couldn't ask for a more explicit example and i'm afraid it was also true for the most part like you know there were far more people who were who's you know had a lifestyle that revolved around doing a job they didn't like and accepting as compensation for it the fact that they could get out of their heads at the weekend than were in any way meaningful sense being being radicalized by that experience. Yeah. So you would have to say that the radicality of it really partly depends upon the historical moment. It depends upon the institutions. But I would say again, uh, over the course of the 2000s, when I was kind of organizing events myself, I mean, there were times when I was quite worried that the events I was involved with organizing were essentially just becoming a sort of a luxury lifestyle accoutrement affluent young professionals and i think there was times when that was happening but also you know lots of people um you know lots of people over the years have, have told have talked to me about you know really finding it in some sense life-changing about you know changing their job changing their careers changing their life trajectory partly because of this experience and that was despite the fact that it was, you know, we were often not very explicitly political, really, but we also had this very strong commitment to just not allowing ourselves to be contained by capitalist institutions. So it was a really simple principle that from the moment we we started doing, you know, the nights I DJ at, DJ at myself from 
in 2005 that we we had a principle that we wouldn't accept any form of corporate sponsorship and it's very easy to get corporate sponsorship if you're doing any sort of music stuff because there's a whole bunch of essentially the drinks industry just that's how it advertises itself is through sponsoring music events and and music and music culture in britain is completely dependent on the drinks industry sponsorship as well commercially and has been for 20 years now um and just the fact that we said no we won't do that <laughs> we won't accept any form of sponsorship or advertising <laughs> meant that you know at certain times you know, people experienced it as this fairly unique space like outside of capitalist social relations and it was able to you know maintain a sense of sort of autonomy and and we've always tried to do it in spaces insofar as we could that weren't commercial club spaces we've almost never done it in commercial club spaces so and what i think what's significant about all that is well the context is everything really but then you know context but context is not always just something that happens by accident context is is partly the yeah, you could you can create your own context by taking politically strategic decisions to do so. So I think, and I think those are, you know, those are, and that is partly what will determine the extent to which the dance hall does or doesn't function just as a tool of capitalist reproduction. But of course, the other thing to say about all this is when you're talking about any institution that ser- partly serves a function for capitalism in terms of keeping workers healthy and happy. It's the case that socialism, the anti-capitalism, the political struggle, trade unionism also requires workers to be healthy, happy, and educated. And this is partly this, and this is a dilemma for capitalists, and it has been since day one. The dilemma for capitalists is, as I always put it, I mean, my way of ana- analyzing this in my own terminology is to say, look, capitalism has to potentiate collectivities if you and that yeah that's what a factory a factory is a means by which a bunch of people are made infinitely more productive than they would have been if the factory hadn't been there and that is a problem for capitalism from day one because capitalism has to find a way of ensuring that that potent collectivity as i call it continues to do the thing capitalism wants it to do is to generate commodities rather than doing something else which it could do you know it could generate some things that are not commodities that are just objects of social utility and that's also true it's it's the dilemma for capitalists really since the mid-20th century maybe the period between the wars that you can't really you can't achieve high levels of productivity without an educated workforce but educate educated people they tend to start asking questions about the conditions of their exploitation and that's, that's you know they tend to not accept high levels of exploitation if they can avoid it and it's and it's also you know it's the it's the, the same when it comes to health i mean the genius of the american system is they found a way they figured out a way of making of, of making sure that the workers that they need to be healthy are kept healthy while ensuring that health access to health care is completely dependent on your position in the labor market hierarchy from a capitalist perspective, that's that's the the American medical insurance system is is total genius. Whereas uh, the NHS, you know, by contrast, you know, from a capitalist perspective, is a catastrophic defeat. It was a catastrophic, you know, within that local localized space of healthcare, a catastrophic defeat because it, it didn't, and that which is why, as I said, I have said on many podcasts and will continue to say till the day I die, or continue to make the point 
uh, the right wing of the Labour Party and their hero, Ernest Bevin, did not want the National Health Service. They didn't want it. They wanted a social, in- they wanted publicly funded healthcare, but they wanted a social insurance model that was dependent upon you having paid out things like national insurance. And of course, they wouldn't have put it in explicitly in these terms, but partly the reason they wanted that, because because they could see that a fully funded, genuinely socialistic, universal provision model of healthcare poses a real problem for capitalism, that one of the things which makes people dependent upon upon wages and upon their employers is removed from their control uh, when you have a model like the NHS. So it's always a problem and it's always a a dilemma and it's always a mistake I think, to fall into a certain kind of leftist perspective, which thinks that you radicalise people by subjecting them to higher levels of exploitation, higher levels of oppression and depriving them of care, because there is zero historical evidence for that. There is just zero historical evidence that if people are not feeling cared for, they're miserable, they're tired, they're exhausted, they're more likely to become to be radicalized it just doesn't happen people think it i know it seems logical that people think it should happen but it just doesn't i mean and if people do get radicalized under those conditions they almost invariably go to the right i don't want to linger on it too long but i did want to just point out as well that the example they use about the cream nightclub advertisements probably the most explicit example i've heard of marcuse's theory of repressive desublimation in a, in a in a kind of single piece yeah yeah <laughs> um just in case i don't know that seems like a helpful aid for people that might not be familiar with what that theory means but that seems like a really helpful <laughs> thing you can look to that just explains it perfectly um so with one eye on the time i mean there's a few things that i wanted to ask you about and i think one thing that might be worth talking about just because uh, pharmacology and, the, and drug use it, uh, is an activity that defines a, a huge amount of what happens in both the, the medical context and the dance floor and they're both very different in some ways but then there's, there's also a kind of uh, I think there's an interesting comparison to be made there so I guess the, the way into it is to maybe ask you I mean how, how do you see the role of drugs in in structuring the embodied experience of the dance floor um, maybe that's too general but but maybe that's the way to start off well I mean obviously drugs have been really important uh, in dance floor culture, going back to the end of the 60s, when it's really amphetamines, actually, that drive, in Britain in particular, it's amphetamines that drive the development of northern, the northern soul scene, which is really the, the beginning of sort of all-night dance culture in Britain. So they've obviously, they obviously are really important. Um, I would say I think it's, it's possible to overstate their importance to the extent that you know, one thing I'm always interested in is the idea that we live in a society and probably this begins with the mechanization of industry in the early 20th century. We live in a society in which people are generally suffering from a chronic lack of exercise, just a chronic lack of phys- the kind of physical exercise which our bodies evolved to expect. And they're just not generating the endorphins from physical exercise that, again, our bodies, I would say, are still basically adapted to. Um, to, to generate and to some extent to depend on so from, from that point of view i think a, a, you know just you know dancing for a long time is, is a way of getting out of exercise in a way that's quite fun you're doing it with a lot of other people and is going to generate powerful effects um so from that point of view i think it's and i think 
I think a lot of the, I think whether you're talking about um, amphetamines or MDMA, I think a lot of the time what's happening is people are just a sort of resist, you know, people who have been out late and they've been drinking and otherwise they wouldn't like do a load of exercise or sort of enabled to or encouraged to, to do a lot of exercise, you know, to do a load of exercise. Um, so I think, but I think you can't get away from the fact that, you know, what it means to be human in a modern society, and this goes back at least to the 18th century, and um, probably, I mean, it doesn't, I mean, really, I think this this is to, I, I would go, I would start this sentence again, actually, say, what it means to be human is to exist in a relationship to the world, which is thoroughly mediated by certain kinds of technology, always. And this is true, whether you're talking about the fact that Homo sapiens sapiens and uh, more than one of our immediate hominid ancestors uh, really have to don't have enough fur on their bodies to survive winters outside equatorial regions on planet earth so you have to clothe yourself with something exterior and you have to use tools in order to create those clothes and, and to get food all of that means that simply what it means to be human one of the things it means to be human is to be completely dependent upon a, a certain kinds of technologies and those technologies again again this goes back to before you know we even evolved in our current form include various things that you ingest you know whether it's just let whether it's lettuce or whether it's you know uh, stimulants or whether it's you know speculatively as, as people have speculated whether it's you know things like psilocybin mushrooms you know we're dependent upon all those things and it's through the modern period i think there's a really good argument that all kinds of modern forms of uh, intellectual labor just basically aren't doable without you know sugar coffee and tea you know coming into the west and, and just making it possible for people to just sit and read or write for hours at a time in which i i think you've got to be really highly trained as a human being to be able to do otherwise i'm not sure people can do it otherwise really so in all those senses, you know, pharmacology is is just a part of what it means to be human. I mean, and humans are sort of pharmacological beings in that sense. So I think it's easy, it's probably possible to exaggerate the, the idea of the dance floor as somehow unique as being a space in which people experiment pharmacologically. But, you know, there's no getting away from the fact that it has been really important but from my point of view as a sort of cultural historian, I would say probably what's most interesting is the way in which the kind of meaning and the apparent experience people are getting from like particular drug experiences changes quite radically over time. I mean, MDMA is still the sort of iconic drug of you know, British dance and, and club culture. And but people really experience seem to experience it really differently. So in the early 80s, it's basically it's a sex drug on the sort of the, the kind of elite edge of the new york gay club scene and and then in these weird little pockets like in was it in texas like you know i think in houston it's the scene of the yuppies that like, being really into mdma and it's like a sex drug and then in the early 90s it's it becomes the opposite it's just, you look at the comments made by sort of characters in irvine welsh novels and stuff it's this sort of anti-sex drug always it's this because it's experienced as sort of breaking down normative modes of masculinity in particular, normative modes of, sort of heterosexual masculinity in such a way that, you know, straight young men experiencing is, uh, it is sort of liberating, but in a sort of desexing sort of way. And that was, you know, that was sort of what people like me were really starting to write about in the 90s. 
And then it gets sort of recodified as a sex drug because, you know, girls aren't allowed to go into places like cream if they're not dressed in revealing enough clothes. You know, and it's sort of associated in the, in the 90s. It's, a, it part, it's associated with kind of long marathon dance sections like the, the speed of the Northern Soul scene. And then, you know, these days, I mean, my perception as somebody who sort of runs club nights is that these days, you know, people don't really... Most people go out dancing for sort of four hours, four or five hours at a time. They don't really do, very few people do sort of 12 hour dance sessions that people did in the 90s. So the the usage of those things can really change and the way in which people experience them can really change. And also I look at, you know, I look at drugs I don't really have any experience with, like ketamine, the way that's really, the the usage of that has changed and, and the way in which people seem to experience it has really changed. So, because it's notoriously difficult with psychoactive drugs to to come up with any objective standard by which you can judge like the ways in which people are experiencing it and what people are what people are doing with it but i think it is significant that it's really historically variable of course from a medical point of view all this is not that surprising but it is it is also really interesting that you know everybody knows that the the ways in which psycho so psychoactives are experienced by subjects is highly dependent upon institutional factors, contextual factors, you know, and um, physical factors. But you know, everybody also know everybody knows about the placebo effect. You know, the extent to which you know there's a very complex and often quite mysterious relationship between you know the psychic and the somatic. So, and I think obviously. Uh, all that is all that has to be taken into account when thinking about the ways in which drugs are experienced in that way. Yeah, I wanted to link back to the anti-psychiatry movement as well because obviously that generates a whole body of thought about um, or or a critique of medicine and, and medication as as a form of control. And and, it, and again, there's this interesting double quality of based on context, based on sort of intention, based on relationships. The same technology can perform wildly variable functions. I mean, how, how do you see the kind of um, that anti-psychiatric critique of medicine as, as almost purely a form of control kind of relating to the conversation we're having here where we're also looking at the, the sort of liberatory possibilities or, or, the, or the sort of breaking down effects of, of, of these substances in certain contexts? Well, I think, yeah, that is a really interesting question. and. So, obviously, I mean, today, the most influential and most familiar version of what was the anti-psychiatric critique is Michel Foucault's analysis of medicalization as, as a sort of mode of discipline and a particular form of way of producing types of knowledge. And... It obviously has a lot of utility. I mean, obviously, the idea that there's something problematic, at least, or something to be questioned about the way in which a particular set of institutions, a particular type way, types of knowledge formation, will allow all kinds of behaviours and experiences to be pathologised and will subject uh, human bodies and psyches to various forms of disciplinary intervention in order to modify those behaviours. I think, you know, it's obviously right to question all that. I do tend to think that, like, a simple sort of anti-medical model um, isn't particularly adequate for understanding the kind of various power relations involved. So, you know, my favourite example 
when trying to explain some of these concepts from Foucault to students is the problem of ADHD diagnosis. Because on the one hand, you have this situation. I mean, it's very well known. It's, you know, it's been, I mean, I think this will be very well known to listeners. You know, it was satirized in The Simpsons. It's, we all, I think everybody sort of knows that there's an issue with the extent to which the label ADHD is often applied to a set of behaviors and symptoms, which would not seem to be really pathological and would seem to have, you know, would seem to require, you know, lifestyle interventions, not medical interventions. I mean, the simple fact, you know, if kids are, are eating loads of sugar and they're, spending hours in front of the screens and never getting any exercise and they're not going to sit still in a classroom. And under those circumstances, prescribing, you know, very strong sort of advanced amphetamines is problematic. And the way I always put this to students is to say, well, this is a perfect example of what Foucault would call the transactional reality. Because on the one hand, you might say that prior to the act of diagnosis, there is no such thing as ADHD. On the other hand, it's important to understand that once it becomes a social fact, that you're giving people brain-altering chemicals because of that diagnosis, then it becomes a social reality, you know, a concrete, physical, corporeal reality, whether it was one before or not. So that's one thing to say about that. But another thing to say about that is, well, in if you start trying to analyse the power relations involved in that scenario, there's a very simple Marxist explanation, which is that it's beneficial to capital, uh, both to have loads of really expensive drugs being prescribed, and also to have it not being a widely recognised social fact that, for example, parents are working too much so they can't take their kids to the park anymore. Um, that's all beneficial to capital. All that is true. But there are also other dimensions of the process. And you know, the point I always make to students about this is, of course, you know, there's also something you will hear from doctors. I mean, something doctors have been complaining about for years now is the extent to which the pressure for ADHD diagnoses doesn't just come from pharmaceutical companies or schools. It comes from patients themselves who want to be ADHD diagnosed for all kinds of reasons. And, you know, sometimes parents want to do the diagnosis for children, but also, I mean, these days, lots of people diagnose themselves. And in that context, in that kind of context, well, it's not just the model which people like Lang and Foucault were quite attached to the sort of implicit model where it's just like the doctors sort of claiming this position of omnipotence and omniscience and sort of imposing their norms on people. That model, it doesn't, it's too simple. It doesn't really work. And it, and I think that sort of demonization of doctors uh, and the so-called medical establishment, I think within a lot of those discourses, I think is often politically unhelpful. And it does, it doesn't really help to develop a complex politics of care i mean i'm sort of conscious i'm conscious in saying this that uh, as a sort of upper middle class professional uh, arguably my class interests are very much aligned you know with those of doctors <laughs> so more than they are with you know, most other pa most of my fellow patients and you know i don't have the experience as a you know white male you know person with a you know with a phd and professor in front of my name like i don't I don't get patronized by doctors. So, so there are reasons why I might be motivated to reject sort of anti-medicalism. But broadly speaking, I think, I think obviously that anti-medical, the critique of medicalization is really powerful and really potent in, in many contexts. But I, I think it's also the case that there's a sort of 
casual and simplistic version of that anti-medicalism, which has now, for example, fed into forms of right-wing conspiracism, yeah. you know, in the anti-vaccination movement, for example. And I would have to say, see, you know, I would have to say, you know, even among members of my own family, you know, there's a sort of two-core rejection of, of medical authority which is really based on nothing but a sort of inherited insistence on the idea that medical authorities is a bad kind of authority, which which does go back. Um, you know, it's partly it is partly it's an inherited memory of the struggle of some of the struggles of the sixties. I mean, you know, it's important to remember that, you know, for women in particular, I mean, there was the case that lots of women in the sixties, seventies, and eighties experienced themselves as really. You know, being patronised, being treated as you know, objects, as not being given autonomy, especially around issues like childbirth, uh, and that has left a kind of real mistrust of medical institutions among some constituencies. And that is a real history; it's a real history of struggle, which has to be honoured. But overall, I think when it comes down to it, as a good historical materialist, I do believe in science. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I believe in science, and I also just recognize it's not ultimately you know a lot of the time it's not really it's i don't really accept that the kind of argument may be inherited from people like lang that there's a kind of inherently oppressive nature to institutions like the hospital um i mean just speaking there one thing that i could be interesting to think about as well is if we think about women's liberation gay liberation trans liberation the site of the hospital and the site of the dance floor could not be more sort of opposed in the, in the role they play to both of those social struggles. I mean, could you maybe talk a little bit about how you see the, those two institutions and how they relate to those specific um, forms of struggle that I suppose speak to gender, sexuality, and why they have... I mean, there's probably lots of complex reasons, but maybe if you could speak a little bit to to why you think they, uh, they hold such differing uh, ends of the spectrum, maybe. Well, I mean, obviously, they're, they, you know, they serve different functions. I mean, the yeah. dance floor is is a is a place of entertainment more than anything else. It's a space of leisure, uh, and the hospital isn't. The hospital isn't. It's not supposed to be fun. <laughs> and um, you do go to both to feel good. Well, that's true, actually. Yeah, you do go both. You do both go to both to feel good. It's true. Um, I think. Um, yeah, you do both. You do go both to feel good. I mean, I would say. I mean, the hospital does. I mean, this is partly Foucault's point. It's partly part one of the reasons Foucault is uptight about hospitals is because uh, patients are worked on individually. Mm. Um, patients have, have to be treated and diagnosed individually, whereas on the dance floor, you know, it, the experience is inherently collective. It's an experience of collectivity rather than an experience of individuality. And it's true that it, you know, in the hospital, you know, the you know, the patient is being assessed according to a set of you know, abstract norms, and it's the extent of their deviation from those norms is the is what will determine the extent of the treatment and the nature of the treatment they'll receive. Whereas on the dance floor, it's a collective experience, and it's an, it's an experience in which you know, individualized norms or you know norms in general are often being transgressed, or what seem to be norms of, of ordinary behaviour are being transgressed. Or that's the that's what the idea is supposed to be. Of course, Foucault himself. I mentioned Foucault. Foucault would not really agree with any of this about the dance floor. Foucault would probably want to argue that you know, 
what's going on in the dance floor is, is also just ritualized forms of self-fashioning, which might be regarded as transgressive in certain ways, but often only in ways which just leave the norms in place. I mean, that's always been one of the problems with the idea of the dance floor as a utopian or political space. The question of well, to what extent by behaving in particular ways on dance floors and not anywhere else, you are ultimately just reinscribing the normativity of those normal types of behaviour in those other spaces. But I think at the same time, as, as you say, I mean, they both, yeah, they, you know, the dance floor, as I said earlier, does also have a therapeutic function. You know, it does have a function that which you're, you're trying to, in to enhance the body's capacities to act. I suppose one way of thinking about this actually is, I mean, it does partly have to do with this notion of normativity, and it is one of the, arguably, one of the more interesting features, actually, I think, of the critique of medical discourse that comes out of sort of radical health movements in the 20th century is just is just the fact that it's not is that for the most part medicine is about the the medical approach both to physical and psychological problems is about having an idea of what's what constitutes normal functioning and then repairing any deviations from that rather than having an idea of actually maximizing health sort of maximizing the potential of of those bodies i mean i always used to you know <clears throat> I, I used to tell students the story about how i'd gone i had to have some lung examination and he said oh you because the, the or no it was a heart examination because there was a fear i might have inherited a congenital condition from my dad and then it turned out i hadn't and he said no you're normal the doctor i got the results and he said normal he said actually you're, you're better than normal you're really fit and I, and, I, and I remember saying to students, well, this is, this is a good illustration because the idea that actually you, you can say something positive about the body in that sense and, and it's working is sort of an afterthought to a mode of classification which determines things as being either normal or deviations from normal and the deviation is bad. And so philosoph I mean, philosophically, I mean, I'm not the first person to say this. I and mean, people have been saying, I mean, lots of me medical reformers have been saying forever that we need more of a, an, we need more emphasis on positive health. We need emphasis on fitness, we need emphasis on pre what's called preventative care. But really, preventative care, what it means is like maximum health maximization in some sense, health optimization. And of course, the trouble then is, of course, health optimization programs generally speaking in 20th century and 21st century societies tend to be experienced by populations as extremely invasive like it's extremely authoritarian like they're not they're not generally experienced as things which are helping you they're experienced as things which are monitoring you and surveilling you and imposing new raising the the bar of the norms to which you're being subjected rather than empowering you in some way to transcend those norms or to invent your own norms or to empower yourself in ways which might be collectively determined as desirable so whereas on the dance floor there is this experience this is at least ideally there's this experience of a sort of collective empowerment there's this moment when the experience of being in a group and the experience of hearing this music makes people able to do things physically they wouldn't be able to do outside of that context it makes them able to dance i mean very few people you can't dance without the music you, most people, you know, don't can't really sort of emotionally, physically dance outside of that kind of collective space where everybody's dancing. So you're in this situation where the fact of being in a group, the fact of being in a particular kind of space, the fact of being under particular conditions, the conditions of hearing this music, are making your body able to do something it's not normally able to do. Yeah. 
So there is a really interesting, and I think there, that is an it's an interesting model. It's an interesting model of what it is to have a space, an institutionalized and deliberately cultivated space, wherein the body's capacity to act, as Spinoza would put it, is deliberately enhanced and is enhanced in a sort of open-ended way, rather than being subject to a, a set of you know, externally determined norms and individualized norms, which is going to be judged according to its ability to meet or not me so i think there is something really interesting there and i think and and i would say of course there is a there there, there are histories of radical movements in health like the community health movement of the 60s and 70s which i would associate absolutely with that moment of the counterculture and the new left wherein there was a certain ideal of you know that you would have like something you might call a clinic or a health center or you something some other kind of institution whose function would be to enable people collectively and socially to maximise their health, to maximise their capacities. So I think there is certainly, you know, there, there's an affinity there between the idea of the, the dance hall as a democratic space for maximising physical capacities um, and the aspirations of some of the most important strands of, you know, radical health practice. Well, so I'll, so I'll take this opportunity to mention one of my fav my favourite historical factoids um, <laughs> regarding the politics of healthcare in Britain, which is that in the early 70s, there were these institutions in introduced called the community health councils, which were institutions according to which local, uh, local health services were brought under some kind of democratic control. I think community health councils were technically speaking... You know, they elected, they were elected from local bodies of local representatives. I think they were usually, there was very, relatively little participation. And I think the, I think they were usually uncontested you know, positions. But the CHCs were a direct outcome of pressure from the early 60s onwards for a democratisation of hospital governance. They absolutely, in some ways, they're one of the best examples of that kind of radical democratic, the democratic collectivist impulse of that moment um, which I was talking about earlier being manifest in institutionalized forms I think it was actually the Tory government in the early 70s which signed off on the CHCs but it was in relation it was in response to this grassroots pressure which was coming through so which shows how that pressure to democratization in that moment wasn't just about students you know, wanting control over syllabuses or protesting about the Vietnam War is about a very real widespread wave of demand for the democratization of social institutions. And then the CHCs were abolished. They would they survived the entire period of Thatcherism and they were eventually abolished by the Blair government and, and replaced with just, you know, meaningless patient consultation bodies, you know, corporate modeled entirely on, on corporates and stakeholder consultation bodies. So there's it absolutely is the case that that wave of radical democratic political demand uh, for which i think you know the counterculture was still quite a good name you know, it wasn't just about you know people taking drugs or living in communes it was about a whole wave of political demands which absolutely bore upon the way in which healthcare was administered and it's and i think it's really you know it's really significant that the the, the high moment of neoliberalism in britain the, um, the moment of the Blair government they were that is the moment when those democratic institutions were replaced with these sort of corporate con consumed bodies instead okay so the la last thing I'll ask you um I, I definitely spend a lot of time 
when I speak to people on this podcast, ask them about what it means to kind of politicize an experience of illness. And I quite recently spoke about what it means to politicize the, the human experience of grief. And, and I was kind of thinking about what you said earlier about um, the, the importance of politicizing people as they experience care, as opposed to a kind of, you know, desolation. Um, uh, and so the final thing I ask you is, I mean, could you talk briefly what you think is kind of at stake when people can politicize a, um, an experience of collective joy, an expression of, uh, kind of the kind of collective potential for pleasure and fun and, and, and these things as well as a, as a nice uh, other side of the coin to the question that I'm frequently asking people about <laughs> on this. Well, I mean, I think for me, collective joy is this quite technical term which has to do with the idea that in the terms first used by the 17th century Dutch philosopher Baruch Spinoza, joy is sort of the, the basic form of a positive affect, is the basic form of a positive experience of being in the world. And joy, as opposed to pain, is always an experience of your capacity to act in the world being enhanced rather than being reduced, whereas pain is always the experience of your capacities being reduced. And one thing that's crucial about the way in which that's conceptualized by Spinoza and by some of his later uh, readers, people like Deleuze and John Pratabi, who's influenced my reading of this, is that that capacity, that, that enhancement of your capacity to act in the world is always what it is, is also an enhancement of the capacity of bodies to relate to other bodies like whether those are the human bodies or you know whether it's your body's relationship to the physicality of your bicycle or whatever it is that so joy is this quite technical term that involved that and and all joy to some extent is collective joy to the extent that is an experience of relationality and it's experience of the relatedness of your body to the the other physical aspects of the universe which you inhabit and an enhancement of your the capacity of your body to be you know, part of a wider assemblage with all those other things, whether that assemblage is a, is is a crowd on a dance floor or whether it's you sitting at your computer tapping away, having a good time. And from my point of view, it's it's the one reason why the question of the enhancement that experience of the self as being able to affect things in the world, able to do things in the world because of its ability to collaborate and cooperate and connect with other parts of the world is really important and is politically important today is because of, according to me, at least, the fundamental operation of neoliberal uh, capitalism, of neoliberalism as a set of institutional practices is to try to uh, deny people's capacity to collaborate with others, to cooperate with others, to experience and to experience collectivity as empowering and empowered. You know, the basic mechanism of neoliberalism, as I put it sometimes, is to try to construct a, a set of social relations within which we all experience other people primarily as a problem rather than as a source of comfort, a source of possibilities, or a site of potential. And so the experience of collective joy for me. I mean, to some extent, I, I always have to stress this, you know, when I talk about collective joy, I'm not just talking about raves, you know, you can experience collective joy sitting in a library, like reading, you know, a volume of poetry, you know, by, because you're experiencing a, a certain sense of connection, and a sense of connections, which enhance your ways of being and feeling in the world in positive ways. 
So in that sense, you know, I mean, I mean, a hospital can be you know, sort of experience, you know, a certain experience, you know, so aside for experiencing joy in that technical sense. But from that point of view, I guess that the 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 play the the the, the instances in which we experience joy, you know, very obvious and sort of unalloyed and very unproblematic forms of joy, and we experience them in a very unalloyed and unproblematically collective way, like dance floors. Uh, they do take on a certain importance if if for no other reason that they make it they manifest in a very clear and obvious way the extent to which joy and collectivity are indissoluble from each other uh, despite the fact that capitalism in general and neoliberalism in particular is constantly trying to separate them from each other or constantly trying to deprive us of joy so that we will buy stuff instead of feeling joy or to make up for not feeling joy by depriving us of a sense of collective agency but I think it's also, you know, I would never want to fetishize the dance floor as the only possible site of collective joy. And the, the most important site of collective joy, you know, the picket line, for example, is a historically, is a more important site of collective joy than the dance floor. Like, I would never, I think we never lose sight of that. Um, as important as dance floors can be. Thank you for listening to Red Medicine and thank you to Jeremy for such a great conversation. If you'd like, you can tune in next week where I'll be speaking to Jeremy's ACFM co-host, Keir Milburn, about the cosmic right and the weird left. Make sure you're subscribed if you don't want to miss out. Thanks again. <laughs>